Welcome to Ultrasounds, a podcast by ob Delivered. I'm Rachel. And I'm Asabri. Today, we'll be talking about infertility. By the end of this episode, we hope that you'll be able to define infertility, appreciate how common it is, and know some of the basic principles um, of the infertility workup. We're so excited to have Dr. Molly Moravec joining us today. Dr. Moravec is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility and the Department of Urology at the University of Michigan. She also serves as the program director of the Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Fellowship and is also the director of the Fertility Preservation Program at Michigan Medicine. She received her MD and master's in public health at the University of Michigan and stayed at Michigan Medicine for her OB-GYN residency. She then completed her REI fellowship at Northwestern University, where she also received her master's degree in clinical investigation. Her current clinical and research interests include transgender care and fertility, fertility preservation, ovarian tissue cryopreservation, access to fertility care, and fertility and hormone replacement cancer survivors. Dr. Moravec, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we jump into our cases, we wanted to start out with defining infertility. Infertility can be defined as either the inability to achieve pregnancy with 12 months of unprotected intercourse in individuals less than 35 years old, or the inability to achieve pregnancy with six months of unprotected intercourse in individuals greater than 35 years old. Infertility is also very common and affects 15% of all heterosexual couples and has a variety of different etiologies. Um, Some causes of infertility include ovulatory dysfunction, endocrine anomalies, diminished ovarian reserve, uh, structural etiologies like uterine, tubal, or peritoneal factors, and then male factor infertility as well. However, up to 30% of infertile heterosexual couples have unexplained infertility as well. Additionally, it's important to note that male factor fertility is the cause of infertility for 40 to 50% of infertile couples. OB-GYN providers should complete a history on the male partner as well when working up infertility. They can also order semen analysis to evaluate for male factor infertility or refer to a urology provider to complete this part of the workup. As a disclaimer, today we'll be talking about infertility workup as it pertains to heterosexual couples. For more information on LGBTQ health and fertility, you can check out ACOG's Committee Opinion 749 or ASRM's Committee Opinion on Access to Fertility Services for Transgender and Non-Binary Individuals, and we'll include those links in our episode notes. And hopefully in the future, would also like to cover those topics on one of our episodes. Awesome. So with that, we can get started with our first case. So this is a 29-year-old G0 woman with no significant past medical history who presents to her general gynecologist for her annual exam. She has no acute issues, but is concerned that she has not been able to become pregnant despite having unprotected intercourse with her male partner for the past 18 months. While taking her menstrual history, uh, you note that her periods are fairly irregular and occur about every 40 to 60 days. When delving into her symptomatology further, you discover that she also has concerns of acne, facial hair growth, and weight gain. Rachel, what's some additional history that you'd want to learn about this patient? Sure. So it's really helpful to have her menstrual history and some of these other symptoms, which are probably jumping out to a lot of listeners already. But in general, when you're working up infertility, some other history you would want to take in addition to her menstrual history 
which you'd want to include the age of her first menses, what her um, cycle interval length, the length of her periods, and her flow and any pain she's experiencing. We also want to ask questions about her medical history. Some particular things that might be worth noting is if she has a history of thyroid disease or hyperparathyroidism. We also want to take her past surgical history, really paying attention to any abdominal or pelvic surgeries, her family history, including a history of infertility or early menopause, and then her sexual history, including timing of intercourse, any other issues with intercourse, including pain or history of any STIs. Her gynecology history is also important, looking for a history of abnormal uterine bleeding, endometriosis, any structural conditions like polyps or fibroids, and again, STIs. And also want to know if she's ever been pregnant before and how she got pregnant and how her pregnancies went. But Asabri, from this vignette, what is jumping out to you and what do you think is going on with this patient? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Um, So for this case, I think the thing that jumps out to me the most is that this patient has had pretty irregular menstrual cycles and that raises the concern for anovulation. Anovulation is when the ovaries do not release an oocyte uh, during the menstrual cycle. Several things can cause uh, anovulation, including polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. This is the most common one. However, other causes are hypothyroidism, hyperprolactinemia, hypothalamic or pituitary dysfunction, or obesity. PCOS would be the leading diagnosis on my differential for this patient since she meets two out of the three Rotterdam criteria, uh, since she has irregular menstrual cycles, and then she also has uh, some acne and facial hair growth uh, to review the Rotterdam criteria for the diagnosis of PCOS include one, oligomenorrhea, two, hyperandrogenism, either clinical or biochemical, and then three, evidence of polycystic ovaries on imaging. You only need two out of three of these uh, criteria for the diagnosis of PCOS. So when considering the pathophysiology of PCOS, it's really quite complex and involves dysregulation of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, leading to excessive LH compared to FSH, elevated estrogen, hyperandrogenism, and also insulin resistance. Um, Individuals with PCOS also have multiple comorbidities commonly, including metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, and non-alcohol-related fatty liver disease. It's really important to screen and treat for all of these conditions. But going back to this in patient's infertility workup, I think in addition to considering the diagnosis of PCOS, I would also want to order a TSH uh, to rule out hypothyroidism. Dr. Moravec, can you shed some more light on the complex pathophysiology of PCOS? Sure. Um, And you're right. It is complex. And I would even add that a lot of experts don't agree, even on the diagnostic criteria. Um, While we teach the Rotterdam criteria, and that's what our clinic tends to use um, in making the diagnosis, you will find other societies. There's like an androgen excess society that requires hyperandrogenism to be a part of the diagnosis. So if a patient just had irregular cycles and evidence of polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, they would not meet that diagnosis according to the androgen excess society. Got it. Uh, That's super important to know. How would you approach this case and what would be some other tests that are a part of your workup? Sure. So the other thing that I always try to emphasize um, to our students, residents, and fellows um, is that PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, which means you have to exclude other things that could cause their hyperandrogenism. Um, and so we will often get a testosterone, a DHEAS, and a 17-OHP. 
Um, certainly a slightly elevated testosterone or DHEAS could rule in PCOS, but it's not actually why we're getting them. We're getting them to make sure that we're not missing an ovarian or adrenal tumor or a congenital adrenal hyperplasia that's actually creating symptoms that look like PCOS. Got it. How would you counsel this patient on options moving forward for her infertility, including talking about um, like treatment options available? Sure. I mean, so the good news is, is that PCOS is common enough that we have some good studies about how to treat it. And so how I always explain this to patients is like, you haven't even really gotten a chance to try to get pregnant, right? Like, even though you've been having unprotected intercourse for 18 months, you're not releasing an egg. Um, so there's not really a chance for a fertilization event. And so generally my goal is to get the patient ovulating and someone with women with PCOS who are, uh, obese, uh, starting with lifestyle changes, even a weight loss of up to 10 to 15%, those patients will resume ovulation in a subset. For patients who that doesn't work for or who aren't uh, able or willing to commit to lifestyle changes, um, we often use a medication called letrozole to try to induce ovulation. And I would say for most patients, you know, one of those two options are definitely our first line. I really loved how in your guys' introduction though, you talked about the male side of things. I think it's really easy to get blinders on and be like, well, she's not ovulating. So we just need to address that. Um, before I ever started a treatment plan for a woman with PCOS, I would also certainly evaluate the male to make sure that we're not you know, we get her ovulating and then we find out he has a uh, um, abnormal semen analysis. I haven't actually helped them. And so I think it's really important to make sure that we fully work up the male partner in the beginning as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see how from an OBGYN's perspective, you know, we're used to taking care of our patient, but really important to think of the couple as like a dyad. Um, can you briefly describe the mechanism of action of letrozole? Yeah. So um, we don't a hundred percent understand why it works in PCOS, but um, letrozole is an aromatase inhibitor. So it basically, uh, if you get way back to your first year of med school and you remember sort of the two cell theories with the uh, granulosa cell and the theca cells, the theca cells produce androgens that then get aromatized into estrogen or estradiol by the granulosa cells in the ovary. And as someone is um, building a follicle, growing a follicle, those estradiol levels start to increase and basically feeds back on the brain and tells it, um, you know, we don't need any more FSH. We heard you, we're making our follicle. And so basically the way that letrozole works, we think, is by decreasing that aromatization into estradiol so that there's absolutely no negative feedback on the brain. If anything, the brain's like, oh shoot, I need to make FSH because there's no estradiol, particularly in women with PCOS who, um, as you alluded to, I think in your case, often also um, tend to be overweight or obese. Not always, there's certainly um, lean PCOS uh, patients, but fat tissue also has a lot of aromatase in it. So it helps um, also prevent some of that peripheral conversion into estradiol as well. Gotcha, that's really helpful. Okay. Well, with that, we will jump into our second case. So now we have a 32-year-old G0 woman presenting to REI clinic with concerns of not being able to become pregnant despite having regular intercourse with her male partner for the past 12 months. We take a history as described in case one and find that she has a history of an unknown sexually transmitted infection diagnosed when she was 24. It's unclear whether she received a full course of antibiotics. For this patient, what would you be concerned might be causing her infertility? Thanks, Rachel. Um, so again, I think it's important to start um, with the def definition of infertility. This patient does meet the definition since she's uh, been having unprotected intercourse with her male partner for the past 12 months and has not been able to become pregnant. 
Going back to this case, particularly given her history of having this sexually transmitted infection, I would be most concerned about a structural etiology for her infertility, uh, so something like pelvic inflammatory disease or PID. Pelvic inflammatory disease is a polymicrobial infection of the upper genital tract, so the uterus, ovaries, fallopian tubes that occurs when bacteria from the lower genital tract ascend into the upper genital tract, um, gonorrhea and chlamydia are actually the two most common culprits of PID, but PID can also be caused by other non-sexually transmitted infections like BV or bacterial vaginosis. In terms of the presentation for PID, it's actually quite variable. Some patients may be completely asymptomatic. Others might have some acute complications like having a tubo-ovarian abscess. Others will have dyspareunia, vaginal discharge, and chronic abdominal pain. So again, the symptoms very variable and can also be very nonspecific. Um, and it's important to have this diagnosis on your differential and then treat it with antibiotics. At Michigan Medicine, um, outpatient management for mild to moderate PID includes ceftriaxone, doxycycline, and metronidazole. Unfortunately, even with timely treatment, long-term complications can also occur. And these long-term complications include infertility due to scarring of the fallopian tubes, ectopic pregnancy, and chronic pelvic pain. Dr. Moravec, what workup would you want to order for this patient if you suspect a history of PID? And then what labs or studies would be helpful as a part of the infertility workup? Sure. Um, so kind of to go back to the point I made a second ago, I, I always sort of preach that it's really important not to get blinders on. So I would still give this patient a full infertility workup, right? Yes, I just found out that she has a um, risk factor for tubal disease, but we don't know that for sure. There's lots of patients who had a history of an STI who don't have tubal disease. And so I always explain it to patients like you need three things to make a baby, right? You need an egg, a sperm, and a uterus. And so we're going to evaluate all those things. And so that's where I would start. I would do the exact same workup as I did in the one with PCOS. However, there are three ways to evaluate the uterus. So one is an HSG or hysterosalpingogram. One is an SIS or saline infusion sonography or sonogram. Um, and the last is like an office hysteroscopy where we just look inside. When you look inside with an office hysteroscopy, you can't evaluate the tubes at all. All you can see is the inside of the uterus. A SIS is um, where you put saline into the uterus and look with ultrasound. So ultrasound is really sensitive for things like polyps or fibroids or something that might be poking into the cavity. Um, and then we can put bubbles in and hopefully watch them go out the tubes. If we see bubbles going out the tubes, that is very good evidence that the tubes are probably open. If we don't see bubbles going out the tubes, we didn't see bubbles going out the tubes. <laughs> and that's all that means. It doesn't mean that they're blocked. It just means we didn't see the bubbles. And so for this patient, I would favor an HSG, uh, which is where we put radio opaque dye into the uterus and we have fluoro. Um, so we in real time, watch the dye fill the uterus and hopefully go out both tubes. And so in any patient that you were worried about tubal disease, this would definitely be the, the imaging study of choice. Yeah, that's really helpful to know. And thanks for walking us through how all these different studies work. I guess if you found out um, from these studies that there was tubal obstruction, how would you counsel this patient about her options moving forward and what options are available for her? So unfortunately, um, you can't really repair um, tubal disease caused by things like infection. Um, the tube is just damaged. Um, you know, this would be in contrast, for example, to a woman who maybe had had a tubal ligation where we could possibly reanastomose the tube. It just doesn't work in this case. And so unfortunately, if this patient, or if it were to be discovered that this patient had bilateral blocked tubes, her only option would be IVF. Gotcha. 
And can you just briefly describe how IVF works for our listeners? Sure. <laughs> um, it's a, I, this is how I explain it to my patients. Um, once we get you kind of all queued up, we've tested your ovarian reserve. We've made sure, you know, your partner's sperm in heterosexual couples um, is adequate, or do we need to add something um, in the process for that? Once we get all that done, we make a plan. Um, and then it's about a two-week process. And it's a pretty intense two-week process. And so patients um, are giving themselves injections at home every night. They're the exact same brain hormones that your brain sends to your ovary every month um, to tell it to make an egg and ovulate that egg. So it's FSH and LH. In response, that stimulates the ovary. So every single month, the ovary actually tries to bring up a cohort of eggs and the brain only sends enough FSH for one to win and the rest die. There's nothing wrong with the ones that die. And actually it's a completely random process. As far as we know, it's not like the best egg gets picked. And so all we're doing is saving the eggs that would have died that month anyway, by sending more support with FSH and LH as eggs mature, they start to create fluid around themselves. So those are follicles that we can measure on ultrasound and the granulosa cells in those follicles start uh, producing estradiol, which we can measure in the blood. And so on average over two weeks, a patient will be in our office, maybe six to nine times for blood draws and um, ultrasound monitoring. And once we feel like we've reached the balance of getting as many big follicles and a nice high estradiol as we can before we start losing those follicles, we then give them a trigger shot. The trigger shot starts the ovulation process. Obviously we don't want them to ovulate. We want those eggs. So 36 hours after that trigger shot, they will undergo their egg retrieval. That's done under sedation. So not fully anesthesia, but they won't remember or feel anything. Um, it's a transvaginal procedure. When the uh, ovaries get big and stimulated like that with all those follicles, they actually get kind of heavy and sit right on the back of the vaginal wall. So we can put a small needle through the back of the vaginal wall into the ovary and we literally suck the eggs out. The eggs would then go to the lab. Depending on the semen analysis, they would either just mix it with the sperm and let the sperm and the eggs figure it out on their own. Or if we had an abnormal semen analysis, they would inject one sperm into each egg. And then we can grow those embryos out for anywhere from three to five days before transferring one back, thereby sort of bypassing the tubes. Gotcha. That's a really helpful description. And also just helpful to think about kind of the demand on a patient going through this process and how much clinic visits and, you know, just resources it might take for them to even be able to do this process. Okay. But with that, we will jump into our third case. So now we have a 38-year-old G2P2 who's presenting to REI clinic with a chief concern of not being able to become pregnant despite having unprotected intercourse with her male partner for the past seven months. We review her past medical, surgical, family, and ob histories, which are all non-contributory. Her past two pregnancies were conceived without medical intervention. What is the most likely cause of her infertility? Thanks, Rachel. So again, uh, starting out with determining whether this patient meets the definition for infertility, since she's more than 35 years old, she does because she has been having unprotected intercourse uh, for seven months. And the definition for infertility for individuals greater than 35 is if they're unable to become pregnant after six months of unprotected intercourse. As always, uh, the first step is to evaluate for male factor infertility with the semen analysis. And like Dr. Moravec mentioned earlier, you do conduct kind of like the full workup for patients who are presenting with infertility, um, including the hormonal workup as discussed above. So given this patient's age, I think I would be most concerned for something like diminished ovarian reserve. Diminished ovarian reserve is when an individual's ovaries have lower reproductive potential, either due to a lower amount of eggs or lower quality of eggs compared to that of others of the same age. Ovarian reserve can be assessed by measuring the FSH and estradiol levels, ideally during day three of the menstrual cycle, which is early in the follicular phase of the 
menstrual cycle, a high FSH and estradiol in the very early follicular phase uh, is indicative of lower ovarian reserve. Another test that you could order could be an anti-malarian hormone, which correlates with the number of growing follicles and can also be used as a measure of ovarian reserve. Dr. Moravec, are there any other tests that you would order specific to this scenario when you're considering something like diminished ovarian reserve? Not uh, beyond what you mentioned. And then again, like we said before, you know, always a cavity evaluation and a semen analysis. But I think it's important to sort of differentiate diminished ovarian reserve or we started referring it to it uh, more as infertility associated with advanced maternal age because a 38-year-old, her decreased ovarian reserve is expected. You know, so I want to contrast that with like a 23-year-old who has diminished ovarian reserve. And I, I just, I'm harping on this. I know it wasn't your question, but I think it's important for people to understand because I get asked a lot by med students and residents to check an anti-malarian hormone on them. Diminished ovarian reserve, decreased egg count. So like I just say a decreased AMH in and of itself does not predict fertility. So a 23-year-old with a decreased egg count has the same chance of getting pregnant every single month as a 23-year-old who has a normal egg count. The 38-year-old with the diminished ovarian reserve, what's really hurting her is the lack of quality that we see with advancing maternal age. And so I just want to kind of make that distinction is that, yeah, I can get the tests and confirm um, that she has the expected decrease in egg quantity, but I have no way of testing that quality other than using age as a marker. And so, sure, I could get an antral follicle count or something like that to verify what I'm seeing in the labs. But honestly, I'm not even sure it's 100% worth it as much as it is to counsel her um, to have appropriate expectations. That said, if this 38-year-old had even lower ovarian reserve than I would expect for a 38-year-old, now I'm probably pushing her along a little bit to think a little bit more aggressively about her treatment options. Beyond a lowered ovarian reserve, a lot of our medications like Clomid and Letrozole just don't work as well. The FSH in the brain is already elevated um, and it's still not having the effect that we want. And basically Letrozole and Clomid work by increasing FSH. And so in those patients, we probably do make a, an earlier push to IVF, you know, or we say, let's do a couple cycles of Clomid while we're preparing for IVF. Um, and if you happen to get pregnant during then, great. If not, you know, then at least we're ready to, to do the next step. The other advantage of IVF in a 38-year-old is part of those quality issues are increased risk of um, genetic abnormalities in, in the offspring. And so another advantage of IVF in a 38-year-old is that we can genetically test the embryos. So we're only putting back euploid embryos. That's super helpful to know. And that kind of nuance between diminished ovarian reserve and just like advanced maternal ages you were talking about. And also just helpful to know how you'd think about this patient and what you might counsel her about. I was just curious, is there any kind of difference to how you approach a patient if they have secondary infertility and have already had pregnancies versus someone coming in who's never um, been able to achieve a pregnancy? Yeah, that's a good question. I would do the exact same workup because things can change. Semen analyses can become abnormal tubes can become damaged, you know, anything can really happen. So I would do the exact same workup. I have to say that patients who have had a child before, even though they want that second child, just as much as a woman who hasn't had her first child would want their first child, there tends to not be the same sense of urgency and figuring it out and trying, you know, whether or not Clomid will work. And if Clomid doesn't work, you know, what do we do next? Um, because at least in this patient, we know that assuming that first child is with the same partner, that that partner's sperm is capable of fertilizing her egg and her uterus is capable of carrying a pregnancy to term. Gotcha. That's helpful. And I can definitely imagine how just the whole 
kind of social situation of a patient might be different too, if, you know, they already have children versus not, but it totally makes sense that the workup would really be the same because a lot of the factors we talked about, like PID, things like that obviously could pop up at any time in a person's life. But that is our last vignette for today and our discussion on infertility. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, Dr. Moravec. Super helpful to get this information on infertility today. Great. And to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in. Subscribe to Ultrasounds wherever you get your podcasts. For more high-yield topic reviews and recent news, you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at obgyne underscore delivered or find more topic review outlines and free question banks at our website www.obgynedelivered.com. And always remember, we put in the labor so you can deliver. Thank you.